The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Welcome back to class. This is my 49th message on Isaiah. And this is the first time in 49 lessons that I forgot to bring my recorder. So, by God's grace, Tim remembered. Uh, Tim has one, and so I was able to get that. Um, But I also don't have my adapter, so we have no screen. So, I I hope that you can um, follow along as we go. Open up your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 65. There's 66 chapters in the book. Lord willing, we have four lessons left in this book of Isaiah. Which means January, we will complete this task, Lord willing. Isaiah 65, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake. Notice it's plural. Servants. Servants who are birthed out of the work of the singular servant from Isaiah 53. And I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring for Jacob and bring forth Judah from Judah, possessors of my mountains. And my chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. That's one section. The people who have sought the Lord. Blessing. But you who forsake the Lord... Who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, And the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants, he will call by another name. They've all been adopted. New names, new identities. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. The servants flourish. All the rest, pain and judgment. Why is it that the servants will flourish? 
Now we come to our focus text. This is why. And we get two because statements, two for this reason. This is why the servants will flourish, why the former troubles will be forgotten, why they will have a new name, why they'll have gladness of heart, why they'll rejoice and eat and drink in the presence of the living God. For, behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever. In that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner. A hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for promises that through Christ are yes and amen. Promises that are designed, even for us, this side of the cross, to instill hope for consummation and gratitude for inauguration. As we look at this promise of new heavens and new earth, of new Jerusalem, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we read through the light and lens of the Christ and understand for your glory and our good. Today, hope is given. So may it rest on our hearts in that way. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. So why is it that the servants of the living God who are birthed out of the work of the servant, why is it that they will flourish? Why is it that they will succeed? It's because I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. That's how he starts. So we've got these two units, each of them beginning with four, verse 17 and verse 18c. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. And then 18c, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. So, new heavens and new earth. Where do we hear about that? Revelation. Revelation. Okay. Revelation 21. We're going to go there in just a second. 
But before we hear about it there, we hear about it in chapter 66. This is the second time it shows up, so just turn the page. 66, as the new heavens, verse 22, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So he's anticipating an unswerving, everlasting, unchanging, irreversible new creation. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, unchanged, untainted, so it is that your offspring and your name shall remain. From the new moon and the new from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. But in that day of new heavens and new earth, then we read, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. So the day of the new heavens and the new earth is a day of reconciliation and restoration, but it's also right on the heels of fire. Fire that is unchanging and everlasting. New heavens and new earth. Now, the next time we see this is actually, the, the next time at least an allusion to this appears is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17. Who remembers 2 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, that new creational life has been anticipated many times throughout Isaiah. In chapter 1, we heard that the garden of God, the people of God, were like oaks that did not produce, and therefore God says, I'm going to cut down my garden. The original creation, bound up in the heart of man, identified with Adam, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, when they remain unchanged, unregenerated, untransformed, God declares judgment on them, and rightfully so. And yet the rest of the book portrayed vision of a new Eden, a new garden that will sprout from the root of Jesse and fill the earth, a people who will all of a sudden be productive, be flourishing, a garden people. And Paul seems to be talking about this reality. He just uses the language of new creation. We see it again in Galatians chapter 6. Now that Jesus has come and the law of Moses is passed, and now we're under the new law of Christ, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What matters is new creation. It's as if this future new heavens and new earth has somehow intruded into the present. Here's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to the promise, we who have experienced new creation, we who've been reborn, a new man, not connected with the old man in Adam, but now in the new man in Christ, we who are reborn have a promise. And according to this promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Second Peter 3.13 
So even those who've experienced somehow a taste, a foretaste of the future, new creation, are still awaiting the new heavens and new earth consummation. And yet, very clearly, a new creation has already dawned. So, what is your favorite part of Thanksgiving? So we have this, this image of the old age, old creation, old covenant that is somehow getting overcome by the first advent of the new age new creation, and new covenant. And yet, it's only the beginning. And this is the age of the church. An age where the kingdom of God is beginning to expand through suffering and through sharing of those who have been identified with Israel the person. Christ, who represents the people, both Israel the nation and all of humanity in Adam. So you're either in Adam or you've been transformed into the future age while the old age is still continuing. Right here. As we await the consummate appearing of Christ. This is new heavens and new earth, and yet somehow, in some way, really... New creation has already dawned here. And the promise of Isaiah is he's just looking ahead at new creation coming. And he's not distinguishing stages. Now, Revelation 21, that's where we see it happen. John, after this long book of tribulation, overviewing the history of the world from the first advent to the second advent, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming, and noting the pains and the tribulations and the the challenges, he simply says, after Satan in Revelation 20 has been thrown into the lake of fire, and behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Adrian? So, the question is, how much did Isaiah understand that there would be an overlap of ages? Or how much did he, he just think of there being a definitive point in time when everything would be changed? What's clear, it seems, is that he does understand the day of the Lord as um, including both judgment and restoration. So the question would be, how long is the day? Um, And he, he talks about the coming of Christ, including the servant king, including there's a number of things that would happen. So he would have at least understood that in that coming, um, 
many facets would have to be fulfilled. But was he picturing it? The one person that we see on Isaiah 53 He pictures, I believe, that happening with one person, but does he see that person's ministry stretched out over two, um, two periods and two comings? I'm not certain. I... I know that he views the experiences happening over an extended amount of time so that Christ can have returned and there still be enemies. That he's going to enter into a battle and there's still enemies here and there's still people that need to be saved from the enemies after he's come. And yet, does he fully understand... And and he also recognizes, we know from Isaiah 53, not only the death of the Son, but the resurrection of the Son. And yet does he, from the point of that resurrection, give him 40 days for an ascension, does he picture an extended 2,000 plus year period? I'm not certain that he does. Often what we get from the prophetic perspective is a view like I see when I'm on the fourth floor of the downtown campus sitting on the eastern side of the city and looking westward at the cityscape. All the tall buildings are there and honestly in light of the way even when I'm up on the fourth floor there's wide buildings and skinnier buildings there's taller buildings and shorter buildings and when I'm looking out there I can't actually tell which of those buildings all the time is in front of the other one? It's just impossible to tell. What I see is a city, and it's very beautiful in the morning when the sun is coming up. Um, and yet, what we get now is more like a chopper perspective, where we're up higher than he was, higher than four stories, and we're seeing things, the same things he saw. And yet we're seeing them from a fresh perspective in light of the coming of the Messiah, including his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost with this extended period of the church age. But, but Jesus did, I mean, Jesus talks um, like, I have come, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, full stop. Whereas Isaiah went, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. You know, Isaiah went right, right to it. And Jesus seems to stop it and just say, the year of the Lord's favor, roll up the scroll. Today these things are fulfilled, are fulfilled, are fulfilled in your hearing, Luke 4. He's very aware. But I'm guessing his stopping right there would have surprised some people. Um, And it may have surprised Isaiah as well. Because we do know things that Isaiah didn't know. Because Jesus has come. Because we're talking about new heaven and new earth. Could you help me understand? I think of the word heavens as heavens proclaim the glory of God. And then I think of that as being all of creation, the, the starry hosts and the galaxies and everything that's created. Uh, and, and so at the very least, it seems like he's saying there's everything's renewed. Everything's new. I don't know if that's a physical new 
you know, whatever. And I don't know if that matters, but I, but I want to understand. And then the other piece of that question is, in Revelation, it's a singular word, heaven, not heavens. Is there a difference? Or at least in my translation. The... Language of heavens and earth, the clearest commentary that, we're, that we have in Scripture is in Psalm 148, where he calls, praise him, O heavens, praise him, O earth, and then he describes the entities that are a part of each sphere. And part of the heavens are the angels and then the sun, moon, and stars. That in that sphere of heavens is a transformed um, celestial sphere. And then on the earth is everything that we would associate with this planet, including the birds so and, and humanity and the fish of the sea. So... The breadth of new creation, I don't know that it necessitates, for example, a whole bunch of new angels being created. Um, but together, it seems to be talking about everything that was subjected to futility. That's Romans 8. The first creation was subjected to futility in hope. All that was part of that first creation that was subjected to futility, which includes fallen angels, and we in this world that have to experience hurricanes and cancer and sinful proneness in our hearts. All of that that's part of the fallen, futile, cursed creation is being transformed as if it's a fresh beginning. Do you see that being transformed through some cataclysmic, just awful event on the earth? I mean, I, the, some of the language of Revelation sounds like a horrific um, event, but I'm not, I'm not understanding how... So the language is always contrasted with the flood. So the flood was, was global, earthly, and cataclysmic on that global scale. But now, in, in contrast to that... The language is that of fire that will not only burn up the earth, but also the heavenly sphere. But, in and, and I would say, add to it that the cross event is portrayed, all the, the, the image of the sky growing dark and the wrath of God being poured out on the divine sun is using the same imagery of end of the world that we find all throughout the prophets. And what it suggests is that the future judgment that gives rise to new heavens and new earth already intruded at the cross on behalf of the elect. So the level of wrath that will be poured out at the end of the age was already endured on behalf of the elect by Christ. And yet, there is still fire coming. And yet, I say lots of yets and buts, sorry. Um, rather than thinking about the new creation being completely new, 
Romans 8 uses language more of renewal, of there's something about this world that will remain constant all the way to the next. So it says in Romans 8, the creation as we know it was subjected to futility in hope, not willingly, but in hope it was subjected that the creation itself will be set free, not set aside. That somehow all of the, the shadow of death upon the entire universe and the power of sin that brings about that death will be completely eradicated and in removing it, it will be like fresh beginning. But there is continuity and that's why I believe every glimpse of a sunrise or a sunset, standing at the shore of Lake Superior and seeing the power of the waves, standing at the top or looking from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, seeing a glimpse of the Rockies or of the Himalayas, or getting a chance to look in a telescope to see how many more stars there are up there that we can't even see with our naked eye. All of that is actually giving us a glimpse of glory. That, that we're getting tastes of ultimate creation so that, as Lewis says in his sixth, seventh book, as the three children without Susan go deeper in and higher up, they're looking back, they're seeing things that remind them of Narnia, and yet this is more real than anything. And they look back and they can see original Narnia, but it's, it's like a shadow. That there's continuity between the two. And it's not necessarily, even though some language has it all being burned up, it's more a purifying fire through which full new creation comes. And so that there's continuity um, as the dross is burned off. Jesus' advent, that is His first coming is portrayed as new creation. So, what was the first act of God in creation? He spoke. What did He speak? Let there be light. How's Jesus portrayed? He's the light of the world. So that we can have the people dwelling in darkness... That's how creation began. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light into darkness. And that's, it was as if um, there was a decreation happening after the fall. That what the fall was doing is going in reverse. Rather than moving toward life, it was moving everything toward death and chaos. And into that darkness, Jesus comes and reverses things. So that, as in the second book, or the first book um, of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what happens, there is a, a deeper magic such that if a person 
will die on behalf of another, he will actually set death in reverse. So that rather than moving toward sustained and eternal death, it will actually go the other way and move toward everlasting life. That's the power that will be brought about when the stone is cracked and the lion is slain. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, three verses later, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus is being portrayed. He was there at the first creation, and now in His entering into the world, it's as if new light is dawning on a dark age. The future is entering into the present. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let light shine out of darkness, that God has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. He's comparing the first creation with the intrusion of Christ in space and time. And Paul is saying it's already happened. The light has come. Second example, in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is portrayed like a seed that has to be put into the ground and die, and then what the resurrection is like is like the sprouting of that seed. Now, as I've pondered, why would Paul use seed language to talk about resurrection? What day did the resurrection happen? Day three. What day of the creation week did we first see the seeds sprout? Take a guess if you don't know. (laughs) Day three. Because everything went dark on Friday. But on day three, there's the first evidence of new creation. It's sprouted, and and that's the image that Paul picks to talk about the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits and all of us coming after. Jesus uses, is, is clear that in his coming, he puts an end to the old covenant and gives birth to a new. Do this in remembrance of me. Take this cup, which in it is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. Jesus said the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. That's, they, they, were, they were working in space and time, governing all things. The very last of the prophets, sorry, the first of the prophets, after Moses, Joshua, says... Keep listening to Moses. This book of the law shall not depart from you. Meditate on it day and night. The book of the law of my servant Moses. And then the last of the prophets, Malachi, he says, so so beginning of the Old Testament age after Moses, keep listening to Moses. End of the Old Testament age, Malachi. And he's the one who says, keep listening to 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 the law of my servant Moses. 
The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. But after that, after that, after John comes, the gospel of the kingdom is being preached. There's hope for good news, but it's not here yet. And all of a sudden, after John, bam, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Behold, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Something new comes in the coming of Christ. The old covenant is shifted out of the way. In speaking of, the new co- of a new covenant, Hebrews 8.13, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish. Jesus' advent marks the intrusion of the year of God's favor. And yet it's separated from the day of the vengeance of our God. So we already saw that. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. But in Luke 4, that's where Jesus stops, right after the day, the the year of the Lord's favor. So it's as if there's this period of a year, and then there will be a day. And Jesus comes and inaugurates the year of favor. And that's where we're still at, a year. And yet the day of vengeance is still coming, and that's the second coming of Christ. And yet, the future has dawned into the present. I will make a new heavens and a new earth. Somehow that reality, which Peter identifies as still future, has somehow part of it has already come into the present. Jesus says his first advent was about forgiving sins, about Delivering us from sins. Hear the difference there. Forgiving sins and delivering us from sins. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Do you hear that? Canceled sin is forgiven sins. Delivering us from sins is his breaking the power of that so that We recognize, for example, if we grew up in a home that was broken, you never had an example of what a godly man and what true love between mom and dad looked like. All of a sudden, you remember, we have been ransomed from the feudal ways of our forefathers through the precious blood of Christ. That... The problems of the past don't have to be repeated in my life. Why? Because he's not only forgiven, he breaks the power of those chains. If in the past I've battled pornography, lust has been a disposition of my soul. Forgiveness is real. There is now no condemnation, but that's not it. Jesus didn't just die and rise in order to see our justification. He died and rose in order to see our sanctification. And his first coming is designed to bring both forgiveness and deliverance. But his second coming will be to save us from all the mess. Here's the texts. Number one, Galatians chapter 1, 3 through 5. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. He came to deliver us, to forgive our sins and to deliver us from all of this evil age and that deliverance will come. Hebrews 9:28. So Christ, having been offered once, that's his first coming, Christmas and Easter, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, no, that's already accomplished, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I will make a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus' second advent will mean full freedom from the first creation's futility and corruption. Romans 8. For I know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This creation is is eagerly waiting for when the sons of God and all the tares will be separated. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So we've been saved in the present, and yet there's this fullness, this full freedom that we're looking forward to, free from creation's futility and corruption. Or how about Ephesians 1, 3 through 13, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing already in His first coming. New creation, overcoming the curse of the old creation. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Like what? Predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness. And then, in Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we might be the first to hope in Christ We who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glorious grace. In Him, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You believed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Christ's first coming, we get a down payment, a guarantee. Second coming, we get the full inheritance. Last text before we move on, 1 Peter 1, 
1 Peter 1, 3 through 13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us, through the first coming of Jesus, to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unchanging, kept in heaven for us. So there's that, the two ages. Yet already, new creation is ours. Already, He has made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10. He has already done it. So the question was, what power does canceled sin have and in what way practically as we seek to pursue holiness do we see that power dismantled? So the role of the power of canceled sin, it's a Loud, influencing, yet ultimately insignificant power. In Colossians chapter 2, we read that at the cross, Jesus disarmed all the rulers and authorities triumphing over them through his death. So they're disarmed, and yet they're... False weapons. They might be squirt guns, but they look very real. And the lies that they tell and the way they carry themselves, these demonic voices, they still sting and they, they're loud and very convincing. And... So the challenge for us, living in an age that has been subjected underneath all the authority of Christ, and yet, as Hebrews 2 says, yet in this world it does not appear that everything has been subjected. That in that world, we, we, our world, we're constantly battling, having to remind ourselves of what is actually true, that Jesus is stronger, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But why does John have to say that? He has to say it because we forget and it doesn't feel that way because the, uh, the oppression of guilt of past, the consequences of past sins, or our own weakness of flesh 
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That, that internal battle is still so real. And so John can say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we lie to ourselves and make God to be a liar. I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That, that tension back and forth is... So, so Jesus has broken all power already of that canceled sin, and yet the, the idea that the sin can be canceled in the past and then he's breaking something in the present is, is part of that, I think, progressive growth in living out who we are in him, both as forgiven saints, remembering our justification, and as those who walk with power who have an armor of God that was first worn by the Messiah himself, and now we are in him. And so we, we gird on a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness and a shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and a belt of truth and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then we pray. We pray and we fight and we remember. Um, we, we remember that if it's a matter of sin... James says, resist the devil and he will flee. But if it's a matter of oppression, physical, relational, societal, then we remember that this devil who roars around like a roaring lion is real and that the suffering we're experiencing is being endured by our brothers all throughout the world and in the proper time, God will Confirm, strengthen, there's a fourth one. Establish us, he will restore, thank you. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. So, so two different... It's not unbroken and it's not canceled. There is still condemnation. So that John 3, final verse of John 3 says, so if, let me just read it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, say, I would say that to the unbelieving person, I would not say that. I would say, if you believe in Jesus, then he has done a work that allows your sins to be canceled. So come to the light. For he who is a sinner wants to live in the darkness, lest his deeds be, be exposed. So last verse in John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Sin has been canceled. The power of that sin is, has been and practically working out in our life is being broken. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life because the wrath of God remains on him. No canceled sin for those that do not believe and obey. Of Jesus, 
It's very helpful, Mike. Um, identifying our, our new identity in Christ is, is so foundational so that, as Pastor John has said, we need to recognize that daily the only sin that we can conquer is sin that's already been pardoned. The only sins in your life Anger, bitterness, doubt, fear, lust, laziness. The only sin that you can find victory over is sin that has already been pardoned. Because you need a God who's 100% for you, not one who's waiting for you to be good enough. You need to be able to enter into the pursuit, resting in canceled sin and resting in the power of that sin being broken and fresh power for victory that's already been purchased for us by Jesus. In, in Romans, it also says, when you see that flesh nature functioning in your body and you have those evil thoughts, it says in Romans, implore the Holy Spirit to put it to death. And that's where the power is in the Spirit to put to death the flesh nature when you see that function. Yeah, so that... To, to rely on the Spirit so that we can always say at the end, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, I obeyed the form of teaching to which I was given over, Romans six seventeen. Brother Phil? Oh, John? Well, um, I want to, to maybe get back to the text, if I could, just for mm-hmm. real quick, on uh, Isaiah 65, because in this new heavens and new earth, uh, he's describing people are dying, babies are being born, buildings are... We're going to talk about that. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I'm not sure that's the case. Okay. But um, the question with 6520, which is the verse you're referring to, is, um, and yes, how, how, houses are being built. That's 21. Um, and 
remember, we're not looking for an eternal spiritual existence. We're looking for new bodies, physical bodies that we can eat with, that we can work with, that we can run and play and jump, and yet without any fear of loss or pain. Um, So building, not a challenge. The challenge is verse 20, trying to understand what does this mean An infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days, no more shall there be in Jerusalem, in this new Jerusalem, anyone like that. And the question is, do we read this figuratively of there being an eternal context where there is no more death? Or do we read this somehow, new heavens and new earth means there will be somehow Dying. How are we supposed to read this? And then we'll see that with verse 20 where it says, The sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. Is that saying there will be sinners? You'll see that if you go to the NIV, it actually translates it differently. But it's, the question is how to render this word that's been rendered sinner. The one who never makes a hundred years will be accursed is how the ESV renders it. Uh, not the ESV, the NIV, having nothing to do with sin at all. But even the idea of a sinner, the idea sinners are in, in Isaiah can be those who have hope. So that, that the, the fact that there is some continuity with the future age, you and I will forever at one level be able to be called sinners, forgiven ones, transformed ones. And yet our past will always be grounded in, the, in what Christ saved us from. But so what's at stake, though, is, is how to understand this. Yes, many people read the idea that new heavens and new earth is where he starts, and then all of a sudden he switches to a millennium. When, when you could have those who are dying. And either next week or in January, I will try to argue where I don't think in Isaiah, that's at all what's on his mind. I think mountaintop texts from start to finish are envisioning, and this where it says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, verse 25. All of Isaiah's mountaintop texts, we're going to look at them all, and we're just going to walk, not, not them all, we're going to look at five of them, and we're just going to build our way and identify how all of them together support reading this as new creation inaugurated in the Messiah and consummated in the new earth, and that it's not envisioning any millennial age. I don't think the context is going to support that at all. But will um, a, a, a future millennium in distinction from new creation? Um, but we, we will go there. Um, but the new heavens and new earth language, my hope this morning was simply to identify that this is future and yet it's already as well. That new creation has dawned. That's how Paul and the apostles, how Jesus himself envisioned what Jesus' first coming was about, was bringing the future into the present and with it all the hope that consummate freedom from all the curse is on its way. And that's, that's what we're celebrating these weeks is the intrusion of such hope, the intrusion of such new creation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are with us, how much we need you. Thank you for reminders in the church calendar that force us to pause. I pray that all the material hype 
that associates itself with this season would not cloud our vision from the reality that you have redeemed us from looking for gain too low, but rather you have awakened for us highest level gain that we might see you and savor you for who you are. Help us as parents to inculcate that into our kids, as spouses to serve our spouses, as grandparents to pass on such a vision to our grandkids, as fellow uh, folks in the labor force, that we would be a light, bold to speak and intrude comments and to live in such a way that shows we're living for something more than this world. Thank you for the hope of the next. In Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.